National Archives podcast series, Morale, Morality and the Liverpool Blitz, presented by Dr. Peter Aidey, Dr. David J. Cox and Barry Godfrey. My name is Barry Godfrey, I'm Professor of Criminology at Hill University. These are my colleagues, uh, Dr. Pete Aidey, who's a reader in Cultural Geography, and Dr. David Cox, who is a research fellow in Criminology. So we're an interdisciplinary group, and this afternoon we're going to be talking about morale, morality, and the Liverpool Blitz, with a special emphasis on crime and the impact that had on how people felt about the, uh, the terrible times they were living through. So I shall pass over to my colleague, Peter. Okay, thanks very much for, um, for having us. Um, let me first set a bit of a context to this talk. I'm going to do so through the words of the uh, City of Liverpool's Chief Constable in his final and overall report to the Watch Committee following the war, commenting on the total damage and focusing particularly on the weeks from the 1st to the 7th of May 1941. The extent of the raids were to be judged from the total destruction of homes, 4,400. Serious damage to 16,400 and the slight damage to a further 45,000. Water was affected to such an extent that over 700 repairs were necessary and there were 80 cases of damage to sewers. In the city alone, there were 235 unexploded bombs causing 300 roads to be closed to traffic and that was just Liverpool. Altogether, the Blitz had left <coughs> some 70,000 homeless people in the Merseyside region and almost 4,000 people were killed outright with a further 3,489 seriously injured. Over 2,300 high explosive bombs have been dropped as well as a further 119 landmines, countless incendiary bombs, leaving 40,000 tonnes of shipping to lay on the port's seabed. Now reports such as these scratch the surface of a raft of indexes or indexical measures to know the impact of the Blitz on Liverpool and Merseyside. These were the product of an array of statistical measures but also ethnographic observations, press reports, and we see these um, being discussed from local authorities to the Home Office. And these numbers express really a plethora of, of bureaucracy, bureaucracy aimed at knowing the impact of the Blitz, which would, could support and coincide with methods of governing it. What I want to set the context really today is to, to say a bit more about an apparatus of civil protection, civil defence and policing in the context of the Liverpool Blitz, concerned with how to deal with an object that they couldn't quite grasp, they couldn't quite work with, and that object is morale, an object that seemed to go beyond the material damage, but to the collective feelings and behaviour of the population. So the paper explores the issue of morale in the context of Liverpool in relation to not only bombing, but to its preparedness, its planning, and its responses. Issues, of course, with great resonance today under, for instance, legislative frameworks such as UK civil contingencies, resilience. And perhaps this context forms something of the origins to these the practices we see today, although with quite a long detour through Cold War nuclear threats, industrial disputes during the 1970s, oil shocks, post foot and mouth, flooding, fuel crises, and 9-11. So there's quite a lot, obviously, going on in the way and in the middle. Well, within the Liverpool Blitz, what we want to explore is morale in relation to an environment of planning and systems of response and regulation, which sought to grapple with morale as a way to govern and care for the population and their contingencies, their uncertainties and um, immoralities that came to threaten the war effort in terms of production and vi those vital systems of supply. So what then was the problem of the population? 
So by drawing on the documents contained, for instance, for national records and the local ones, we want to show how civil defence, air raid precautions, <laughs> police and wartime regulations grappled with this object that appeared to escape the normal rationalities uh, of governance. Morale seemed diffuse. It seemed to seep through and across collectives of people. It was a property of intimate associations between not just people, but stuff, buildings, objects, food and fuel. It expressed itself in things that they thought they could measure, such as working hours lost, amplifying material and measurable damage by a certain kind of vulnerability or a disposition of a community to bombing and being bombed. And indeed, we could argue that as an object clearly objecting to its manipulation and management, Morale was also irritated and affected, perhaps even lessened, by those very procedures, rules, and practices of social order that we want to explore. So first, I'm going to um, spend some time uh, outlining how the problem of morale materialized, not only in Liverpool, but also in the more national context. as a, a helpful way to, to think about the context of Liverpool and how it resisted analysis and measurement. I'm going to um, say a few things about uh, civil defense, uh, its bureaucracy and procedures, but focus more on one example, uh, on the example of a particular figure of the population, the child, whose morality was put in particular question. And it's by this axis of the child as a sort of moral character capable of immoral behaviour that then Dave will then take over and push off to explore some of the more regulatory arrangements and prosecutions that sought to curb the population's habits, its actions and its urges. So that's the kind of structure. Okay, so in locating morale in relation to civil protection, it's quite difficult to separate it from the kind of matrices of representation, measurement, and abstraction we're presented today in scholarly discussions of targeting and the target during air war and histories of bombing. As historical geographer Derek Gregory explores, this, these processes of targeting have a long history, which has meant an engagement with processes of visualization, imaging, mapping, examination, sequences of interpretation, analysis, deliberative processes of, of um, selection and decision-making over a suitable target. And we know, of course, about the kind of error reconnaissance and the targeting that was going on uh, or being performed on Liverpool, which enabled the Luftwaffe to target the city's ports and industrial buildings, was one step in the chain of sequential processes that would render a distance placed or thing uh, legible in a particular way. Yet, as we know, morale also bridged bombing and aggression, but also morale became a problem of protection. Morale became an object, particularly of a manner of targeting later in the war, and we can draw, you can draw some kind of genealogy, really, between processes of thinking about morale in terms of protection and processes of targeting, of course. We know the kind of influence of discussions of morale that morale had on, on, on targeting or moral uh, uh, bombing. And what I want to suggest is, is that through protection, we might see how some of these processes of targeting were, to a certain extent, inverted, inverted and in being used for defence and protection. Under civil defence and air raid precautions within Liverpool and elsewhere, we see arrangements of preparedness, coordination, response, which were, which were being deployed not necessarily to stop the bomb from falling, but to prepare the ground for the event of if and when it would. Morale was something that bombing would affect, but more precisely, it was being taken as a, some sort of measure of vulnerability or a disposition of response that paradoxically seemed to refuse its measurement and correlation, no matter how much it was tried. Air raid precautions, civil defense measures seemed directly focused on tackling this thing. 
Yet the problem for government departments concerned with civil protection was that they could not really identify morale as an object in and of itself. They couldn't define it apart from the ways in which they might try to influence it and from its effects. For chief scientists such as Solly Zuckerman, it was not entirely mathematical. It was entity which should be considered from all angles and not merely the point of view of the statistician to draw on some of the national documents. To understand it was difficult because the problem was composite. Morale was both an object distinct though necessarily related to material damage. Morale could not be seen in itself but only by its effects on the actions of communities. Directed for the purposes of its measurement and the application of knowledge concerning it, those who considered morale were largely in the dark. Now, Liverpool's 41 May damage and the, huge, and the huge impact on Bootle became one of the ministry's main case studies under Dr Emmons, we don't know that much about Emmons, review of morale following the Baydecker raids in the middle of the war. Bootle, while not part of those raids in 42 and 43, was compared to York, Canterbury, Norwich, Exeter and Clydebank, although Emmons doesn't go too much into the rationale for for uh, bringing Bootle and Liverpool alongside these examples, it appears that it was identified as a place of bad morale and susceptibility, and also, of course, an industrial place. And we see the boundaries between Bootle and Liverpool continuously slipped over in Emmons' study. According to his report, morale was a factor that in which influences the response of towns to air attack apart from the direct physical damage that they suffer, even if it was, in fact, affected by that physical damage. And this ambiguity continues. For whilst morale is drawn quite apart from the physical damage in, in Emmons' last sentence, in the next, the puncture of a raid on morale was seen to be bound up in its other effects and the relations between damage, number of casualties, etc. Numerating these and understanding their relationship and correlation proved to be incredibly difficult. Along with morale itself, all this had to be, all this also, all this other had to be considered. For Emmons, cities could display a kind of history or morale memory, such as previous effects of raids, and these could be easily measured and expressed through quite simple measurements in terms of the loss of production. Thus, if town A loses X days of production per tonne per thousand people in a high explosive attack of a certain type, and town B loses two days of production per tonne per thousand people in no more physically effective raid, then town B may be defined in a lower state of morale than A. To do this would show how beyond real material damage, a certain spirit could be lacking, a failure to respond readily to whatever attempts at compulsion may have been made. And this gave towns such as Liverpool a kind of negative constitution, and one that we might see conversely in relation to today's attempts to raise resilience uh, in relation to shock. Now, readers were quite sceptical of Emmons' assessment, finding difficulty that morale vulnerability could ever be, uh, ever be used to direct any kind of uh, response, and particularly to direct our own bombing policy, that not enough data was available to. But I think we think his report and his measures are particularly interesting to help us understand how morale was being understood widely and in relation to Liverpool, and of course those systems of response and regulation that we're interested in. And indeed, in Emmons' understanding that a raid might be treated as the stimulus, I quote, which provokes symptoms in the towns from which we may judge its morale and the disproportionately strong reaction, the study would treat raids as a measure of diagnosis, a measure of measuring a town and a city's um, health, if you like, moral health, not to be treated as evidence that the raid in itself has weakened morale, but a di diagnosis revealing its, its existing potential weaknesses. 
And whilst these reports are quite careful not to attribute, for instance, the kind of depression of, of a town to the inferiority, a quote, of its people, it seems to express a certain kind of analysis and diagnosis of a city and its populace as being susceptible or dangerous. Now, Emmons looked at correlations between press reporting and absenteeism, finding, however, that it was not possible to predict from the local press the degree of reaction to be expected, as he starts to kind of undo many of the assumptions and the criteria he was using in his study, generating some 42 categories of analysis and, cor and correlation to int the intensity of a raid and absenteeism. Many of these categories were seen to be useless in that, I quote, no correlation between the intensity of the raids or the absenteeism in the towns and press reports was apparent. The outstanding examples of relatively useless categories were, one, visits by royalty, ministers of the crown, uh, two, the drafting of workers or military into the city, three, savings and war charities, four, the attitude to the enemy, five, and this will be interesting later, crime and drunkenness, uh, six, rumours, seven letters and messages of sympathy, and eight accounts of isolated experiences in the bombing. However, what bore closest relevance to absenteeism in press reports was seen to be the more adverse criticism of the response itself of civil defence, air raid precautions, and post-raid services, from which a provisional list of threshold press responses were drawn up for both Bootle and Greenock, who were compared together. At 2.8 to three days lost per worker, the following items appeared in the town's reporting. A, mild adverse criticism on the spirit of the people after the raid. B, criticism of the efficiency of ARP. And in both towns, the frequent mentioning of evacuation and trekking, and we know the kind of strong uh, feelings associated with trekking. Trouble with um, evacuation and billeting. Mild to strong criticism of housing repair and accommodation, post-raid relief, the local authorities, and particularly the government. We see in civil defence a lot of tension between the government and the local authorities. Mild criticism of shelters and post-raid increases in air, in air raid precautions and relief services. So the intensity of the raids, evacuation, and trekking percentages in tonnage would be then correlated with survey material from the Ministry of Information and social surveys. Indeed, the number of looters convicted did bear some relation to this criticism too, as was the number of school days lost. And indeed, school attendance in Liverpool dropped to less than 60% and juvenile crime increased. And it's here that I want to, uh, where we can focus a bit more on response in relation to a particularly murky and risky figure as, it is, as, as it's constructed within Liverpool. And that's where I kind of want to spend the next few minutes before I hand over to Dave on this relationship between the Blitz, morale, and the children and young people. So the threat of, ch of uh, childhood delinquency took particular hold. We know in many histories of the Blitz and in centres of cities such as Liverpool. Directed curfews were uh, confined only to Liverpool's young were even proposed in the House of Commons, whilst in the juvenile courts indictable offences rose dramatically, as did repeat offending. The threat was ever-present, but it was also emergent. This was a threat of the child who, which would get worse unless stopped, a social problem which would grow up, as would the subject, become a, to become an even broader social nuisance were it not nipped in the bud post-war. Children and young people were a portion of the population perceived to be susceptible, especially in some of the reporting, as you can imagine, and of easily influenced from others in the darkened and hidden spaces of the Blitz, uh, especially those spaces of air raid shelters, etc. A 14-year-old girl found paralytically drunk in a, in a shelter with an 18-year-old friend was said to have got into conversation in the shelter with two sailors. Offered a bottle, she did not, not remember anymore. 
Shelter hooliganism and damage were often reported. The theft of the sorts of materials intended to shore up public shelters were commonplace. Examples included children stealing sandbags, which were later found on their own home shelter roofs, and the very bricks and mortar from those shelters too. Tried in the, in, in the juvenile courts, the theft of building materials on sites in progress was commonplace, as was the so-called outburst of juvenile delinquency, for whom the terrors of the courts terrors of the courts and probation were no longer proving to be an effective remedy to the problem, wrote some of the press. With stories of lawlessness, boy gangsters armed with razor blades, threatening shop staff, smashing workshops, factories, atmos uh, Liverpool's atmosphere was said to strike at the root of a national war production. Indeed, indeed, the situation was perceived to be so bad that a Liverpool Juvenile Delinquency Committee was set up in 46 at the behest of a particularly interesting figure, A.J.R. Hobhouse. And I just want to pick up on Hobhouse and Hobhouse's work. So Hobhouse is particularly interesting. He was involved in the earlier Population Commission and was also a director of the Alfred Holt and Company and the Strait Steamship Company, some of Liverpool's uh, most uh, successful and famous um, shipping organisations heavily involved in, um, in the colonies and their, their literature and their letters are being, uh, I think, analysed quite a lot by historians today. But Hobhouse also, as well as being involved in, in the uh, regional tier of civil defence, also set up the country's first junior civil defence cadet corps in Liverpool with a grant for £500 from Thomas Gardner in the Ministry for Home Security. Now, by 1940, Hobhouse had recru recruited over 1,800 cadets before the government even supported the scheme. Recruiting adverts brought the idea within the realms of national service and full-time employment. The, the sort of recruiting adverts went that you may have felt that there were no jobs for the older that there were jobs for the older people, but none for you. This has been so, but is no longer. For now, the other forces of the country are organised. The way in which you can serve has become clear. So, kind of clear resonance with many other kind of recruitment um, schemes. The recruits between 15 and 18 were trained in firefighting, anti-gas measures first aid, effects of high explosives, uh, but they were particularly given drill and physical exercise along the same principles as the Board of Education. Hophouse would later apply for further grants for fitness equipment for his recruits and either even rubber-soled shoes for the poorer recruits. Now, civil defence, like other sorts of youth defence organisations, I'm thinking here particularly of the Air Defence Cadet Corps that turned into the Air Training Corps, and other youth bodies believed that and worked upon this kind of body culture, this culture of the body, that could mould this, this subject, youth, citizen, into the right sort of shape, the right kind of subject. Discipline, from discipline, moral character could result. Now, unsurprisingly, the ministry supported, eventually supported this application uh, to the Board of Education, who, uh, and students were taught, or cadets were taught, the topography of the Air Raid, div uh, the Air Raid Precautions Division, the geography of Liverpool. Many were sent to help with communications, and recruiting stations were set up at over 21 schools, including, for instance, in Toxteth and elsewhere. Now, focus was given, as before, to the cadets' ability to be unwittingly tainted by the wrong kind of adult. Insulated from influence, they could nonetheless improve the morale and enthusiasm, enthusiasm of the adult members of the population themselves. There's a certain relationship between the child and the adult being understood here. Leaders of the scheme, when posting the boys to certain locations, were most anxious to avoid having the boys distributed in ones and twos at the posts of the various services, as hanging about with adults of varying character is apt to be demoralising, too much smoking and playing cards. 
for their spirits, they would need to be kept together with one, of the, the, with one seventh of the service on duty, sleeping in the company's headquarters at night on their own in the charge of just one adult. They need to be separated and insulated off from this uh, more kind of insalubrious influence. On the other hand, this spirit could also be used to infect others with the child's enthusiasm and interest, having a marked effect, it was argued, on the morale of the streets in which they live, so spreading out through the community, a bit like the sort of air raid warden. An important role was then to be cheerful, as you can imagine. It was to help you to be cheerful whatever happens to you, for you know that you will have done all that is possible to equip yourself as a citizen. Remember, it was written, that older people have many worries in wartime, and they need all the help they can get. You can help them by being cheerful. Many of you have a father or an elder brother away in the forces or at sea. You must take his place. Remember that a smiling face is a nail in Hitler's coffin. <laughs> now, official rec recognition and insurance would then be granted. And I'm going to hand over to Dave now to say a bit more about the regulatory environment. Okay. Hello. Um, Pete's shown us how the various agents responsible for the management and measurement of morale uh, during the concentrated bombardment of Liverpool by the Luftwaffe attempted to main maintain order and control morale in the city. And in the concluding part of our paper, I'd like to concentrate on how wartime crime was thought to affect both morale and morality, how such crimes were reported in the press, and how the courts dealt with wartime offenders. I'd like to start off with just a general background and some con contemporaneous reports um, of morale uh, in Liverpool during the, especially during the, um, the, the May uh, week, uh, uh, the first week of May, the worst part of the Liverpool Blitz. A Ministry Inf of Information report on the conditions of Merseyside following the raids of May 1st to the 8th, 1941, reported the following. The spirit of the people of Liverpool appears to be recovering. It is a month since these raids, since these bad raids took place. The horror has to some extent been forgotten. The members of the War Emergency Committee appear to be satisfied with the steps taken during the raids and to be confident that their planning could meet any and every emergency. We do not find this confidence among other officials we met, nor among members of the general public who feared that plans would quickly break down if intensive raiding took place again. They were very fortunate, in fact, they didn't intensive. This was the last of the worst raids, the worst and last of the raids. We were told frequently that the spirit of the people of Liverpool and Bootle is not today much affected by such things as the evacuation from Crete or advances in Syria. They are hardly conscious of these. The only matters in which they are vitally interested are how they can obtain food and how soon they can be housed with a family group again under a roof of its own. A third matter of great importance to them is communication with their families. This is especially important for women whose husbands are in the services. And this unusually frank report of the situation in a badly damaged city is somewhat at odds with the official stance, which is exemplified in this report uh, following Herbert Morrison's visit a few months earlier in February 1941. And this is from the Times, 15th of February, 41. Mr. Herbert Morrison, the Minister of Home Security, visited Merseyside yesterday and in a comprehensive tour of Bootle and Liverpool saw many aspects of civil defence work. And Mr. Morrison said, quote, I've seen enough to convince me, not that I needed any convincing, that the morale of Merseyside is very high indeed, even after its experience of heavy attacks by the enemy. I see that the people of Merseyside are prepared to die rather than see us lose our traditional rights and liberties. In the first week of May 1941, over 1,500 men, women and children did exactly that. Over 50% of the 205,000 houses in Liverpool were damaged and 1,540 people were killed, of whom over, over eight, 800 remained unidentified due to the fact that entire streets and neighbourhoods had been obliterated. There was nobody there left to identify bodies in many streets. There's no doubting the courage and fortitude displayed by the vast majority of the population of Liverpool and Merseyside during these terrible onslaughts. 
and many individuals showed breathtaking bravery in rescuing others. We see here um, a contemporary photograph of Winston Churchill um, walking through, the, uh, sorry, parading through the streets of uh, Liverpool following um, a visit in May 1941. Arthur Johnson, who was a reporter of the Liverpool Echo, kept a diary during the Blitz in which he records that due to the failure of government to provide information to the general public, rumours spread like wildfire. And he states, quote, Following the general policy of the Ministry of Information regarding Merseyside, little news of the severity of the raiding was issued to the country. Consequently, there were many rumours that the city was finished and under martial law, that there had been peace demonstrations, etc., a man was sent to prison for a month at Manchester for spreading such rumours, all of whom which were completely baseless. However, he also records, quote, it can be added without blah that the oft-invoked morale of the people remained admirable throughout a really severe and testing week. Despite this admirable behaviour, however, there was also a realisation that both the blackout and air raids in particular provided additional opportunities for people to profit out of others' misfortunes. Looting and other forms of property theft were made much easier thanks to the actions of the Luftwaffe. Whilst pe petty criminal damage and juvenile delinquency, to which Pete's already alluded, um, were also aided by lighting restrictions. And Liverpool's position was somewhat further complicated, not uniquely, but uh, certainly to a great extent, by the fact that the IRA continued to plan and attempted to execute concerted bombing campaigns in the city during the first years of the war, especially in 1914-41. Uh, For example, uh, in February 1940, Brendan Behan, uh, later to become the well-known playwright, the queer fellow, Borstal Boys, was sentenced to three years' detention in Borstal, he was age 16 at the time, after being found with explosives in his flat in preparation for an attack on Liverpool docks. He worked hard to convince everyone at Borstal, successfully, including the governor, that he was a reformed character during his time there, and he succeeded in being released before serving his full term. He served just over half of his term. However, he'd clearly not convinced the detectives of Scotland Yard, one of whom, in a letter to the Home Office, clearly took some pleasure in pointing out Bean's post-release activities. Um, ju just to follow on very briefly with Behan, he, he didn't serve the full term of 14 years. He served, I think it was five or six years, was released, uh, came back into Britain again, trying to um, carry out another explosive raid, and was eventually deported back to Ireland. Um, both national and local authorities were well aware of the importance of maintaining morale and viewed criminality as a dangerous threat to this aim. Although, in fact, recorded crime, this is adult recorded crime as opposed to juvenile crime, remained relatively stable throughout the war, uh, with the exception uh, uh, of drunkenness, which prosecuted drunkenness and dro dropped sharply uh, during the war, because obviously the police were more concerned with the other more serious matters. Consequently, they made strenuous efforts to be seen to be doing something to prevent and dissuade such behaviour. All, uh, all kinds of bad behaviour were roundly condemned, both in newspapers and official communiques, the following example being typical of how low-level criminal damage was reported in a manner to stir up indignation and a sense of moral responsibility. This is from a report in the Times, 10th of August 1940, about mischievous children uh, and damaging air raids. Many surface air raid shelters in Liverpool have been damaged by mischievous children. The Liverpool Emergency Committee has repeatedly directed attention during the past six months to the malicious damage to shelters. Early in the year, damaged or stolen amenities of the shelters were repaired or replaced, but because of the mounting cost of such a policy, it has been decided on the advice of the Home Office that no more money shall be spent in this way. Shelters in which electric light, fit, light, light fittings have been stolen will remain in darkness, and if doors and seats disappear, the shelters will remain exposed to the elements. In spite of the attention given by the police and air raid wardens and the prosecutions that have taken place, the depredations and damage have continued, although the efficacy of the shelters has not been impaired. 
Damage to manhole escape covers has caused water to enter some of the underground shelters. The authorities have spent a good deal of money in making repairs, which it is felt would not have been necessary. necessary. If parents had taken more interest in the welfare of the shelters and if they had exercised more control over their children. Diatribes such as this against morale-sapping behaviour reached increasingly dizzying, dizzying heights, as witnessed by the reported comments of the Liverpool Police Court magistrate when sentencing two men on charges of food theft. Uh, one man was sent to prison, six others fined £10 each at Liverpool Police Court, and the next step, said Mr Lawrence Holt, Holt to one of the accused is that the police and magistrates will have instructions to shoot you. Uh, it wasn't carried out. Uh, 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 uh. In another case reported on the same day, John Ernest Weldon, who was aged 20 of Walthamstow, was accused of stealing, stealing two carcasses of lamb, the property of the Ministry of Food, and the chairman of the bench, the magistrate's bench, is reported as stating, this sort of thing is going on wholesale. It's a villainous thing. Officers and men risk their lives to bring food into this country, and then it is stolen. We've got to make an example, and you will go to prison for three months with hard labour. However, uh, double standards are also alive and well. At least one just considering there to be a very clear difference between looting in France during World War I and looting in England in World War II. Uh, the latter being clearly seen by him as beyond the pale. A Home Office Directive of 24th of October 1940 announced that an amendment to Regulation 38A of the Defence Regulations made it possible for looting cases to be heard summarily. Uh, this was uh, lesser looting cases rather than the more serious one. And that the maximum penalty for such offences tried at a magistrate's court was to be increased to 12 months imprisonment. The Directive also reminded magistrates that a second amendment required that all offenders committed to trial on indictment must be committed to the Assizes, rather than the Court Assessor. They went straight to Assizes, the highest court or one of the higher courts, unless the Director of Public Prosecutions agreed to the case being heard at QS, Court of Sessions. The Directive concluded with the statements, quote, persons convicted on indictment of offences against this regula regulation are liable to suffer death or penal servitude for life. Similarly, the editorial of the 5th of October of 1940 of Justice of the Peace, which was um, a monthly publication uh, for magistrates, um, clearly stated to magistrates, quote, looting is a form of stealing, and it may be of so aggravated a nature, so dangerous to public morale, that it is sometimes considered to be worthy of the death penalty. And there was a widespread perception that the threat of looting was, was widespread throughout Britain, and a considerable amount uh, undoubtedly did occur. Uh, Robert Mackay, in his uh, book Half the Battle, Civilian Morale in Britain During the Second World War, uh, stated that following stories in the press that workers in demolition gangs were guilty of abusing their positions uh, to help themselves to undamaged objects in buildings, uh, they were making safe, mass observation decided to investigate, placing one of its observers undercover in a demolition squad. He reported that looting did occur in his gang and that conversations that he had had with his fellow workers led him to understand that it was rife throughout the service. He learned that sometime gangers were involved, working in cooperation with drivers and selected workers, and that some men m were known to do the work for looting alone. The cover for the operation was salvaging, which he observed could in any case easily turn into looting. And a demolition, in the, a demolition worker in the East End and London summed up the often low-level crime involved on investigating bombs, so-called bomb bombs. Uh, very particular bomb, obviously. <laughs> Statistical analysis of the cases of looting and other wartime crimes prosecuted at Liverpool Assizes and Quarter Sessions um, indicate that the strong rhetoric from judges and magistrates was not always, in fact, matched by their actions. With regard to cases heard at Liverpool Assizes, the higher court, uh, during 1941, of the 167 cases that came before the judges, only one in seven were looting. 
uh, or other specifically wartime offences. And the calendars make it clear as to whether a property offence such as burglary or larceny was considered to involve looting. So the actual number of looting cases that came before assizes, although they could become before assizes uh, following the amendment of the offence regulations, uh, was actually very low. And of these cases, this is a chart showing the severity of the sentences uh, um, uh, imposed. This is all adults, no, no, no juvenile, well, offenders over 17. So we can see that the vast majority either received um, a sentence of under one year uh, or one to two years. Um, three to four years, a few, and, but the vast majority was one to two years. And remember that the actual theoretical penalty was death or penal servitude for life. Um, the chart shows that despite the theoretical maximum penalty of death, many of those convicted of looting offences actually received relatively lenient sentences. Turning to court assessing cases, out of the 122 cases before Liverpool magistrates during 1941, only nine were wartime offences, and in fact these were all part of one very large police investigation into a forgery gang of dock labourers who attempted to defraud the Ministry of Transport. All nine were found guilty, but they were only fined five pounds each, it's a fair bit of money in 1941, not, not a huge amount. And some cases that originated in Liverpool may, ha may have been heard at Manchester Assizes, but there's no reason to suppose that the pattern would be any different at that court. Now, unfortunately, the lower court records, where the majority of wartime offences would have been heard, unfortunately don't survive for Liverpool. Um, but we have been able, um, with the help of Birkenhead, Birkenhead Record Office, to access and record those of Birkenhead. And during 1941, 210 cases were brought before the Birkenhead Magistrates Court. This number, again, does not include juveniles. And of these 210 cases, 56 were specific wartime offences. Um, blackout infringements accounted for uh, 17%, breaches of defence regulations 8%, and looting just 2%, a total of just over a quarter of all cases. Uh, and looking at blackout offences, uh, for example, again, uh, we find that the penalties do not match the official diatribe. Although as early as January 1940, the editor of Justice of the Peace was com commenting on the foolhardiness of ignoring lighting restrictions. Although most people take the blackout philosophically and accept the position that the government must decide how much light can be tolerated, a few thoughtless people add to the difficulties of the, time, of the times by failing to conform in regulations or to adopt advice. On a railway journey, it is disconcerting to see quite a number of bright lights from the rear of the premises near the line. Some householders have evidently have a confused notion that as long as no light shows in the street, no harm is done. Or is it something worse? Do they count on escaping detection? And the little bending of the rule of law, uh, remember this was in just the piece, the magistrate's um, uh, magazine, was also vicariously encouraged. Whether or not anybody actually took the advice of this uh, uh, magistrate, I don't know whether anybody came uh, before the magistrate was charged with stamping on a board and, uh, and damaging a torch. Um, we find that in actuality, again, the penalties were not severe. And this is blackout penalties for Birkenhead Magistrates Court during 1941. And again, we see that the vast majority of, uh, were a fine of, of two pounds, which uh, again, wasn't a huge amount of money even in 1941, obviously much more than it is now, but even if you times it by 50, 100 pound fine. Um, Similarly, with regard to defence regulation breaches, the most severe penalty meted out by Birkenhead magistrates in 1941 was, for a, was a fine of £10. And this was for failing to ensure that there were adequate fire-watching procedures at the Star Yacht Works, which in fact before the war made model yachts, wooden model yachts, and presumably been um, um, turned over to making uh, larger-scale yachts. Uh, so they made wooden yachts with canvas sails, a good source of flammable material if ever there was one. Referring back to uh, Professor Emmons' um, report, which um, Peter's already dealt with, he, reported, he remarked in his summary to his report on morale during wartime um, 
which was presented in 1943, that perhaps the most striking conclusion which emerges from the present study is that marked and frequent press comments on crime, drunkenness, looting, and the behavior of people in general, criticism of the ARP, shelters, post-raid services, and of the local and central authorities is not in itself an indication of bad morale, but may reflect the normal course of events in a town which has been badly hit. It's only then we, when these reports occur in the absence of sufficient material damage in the town to explain them that they can be regarded as evidence that morale is weak. And this would have been, appear to be the case in Merseyside. Whilst Liverpool and its environs had received and, su and survived a sustained bombing campaign for over nine months from August 1940 to May 1941, and Liverpool was the second most heavily bombed uh, city after London. Um, and whilst the local and region, regional press was awash with reports of wartime offences ranging from looting to food hoarding, morale remained surprisingly high with people attempting to carry on with their working and personal lives. In his article, Crime in Wartime England, which was published in September 1941, the well-known criminologist Herbert Mannerheim attempted some statistical analysis of attitudes to looting by courts, and he gives three, three different stages. Uh, so one, during the first stage, lasting approximately until the middle of October 1940, magistrates, although almost invariably referring to the possibility of a death sentence, as a rule, confined themselves to fines or short prison sentences. For this, they came in for a lot of criticism, especially as looting cases were increasing during October. This is throughout the country as a whole. Two, as a consequence, police courts resorted to more drastic measures, especially against men in official or semi-official uh, positions. They were usually committed to assizes, where heavy sentences of penal servitude became not uncommon. And three, after a few months of vacillation, important sections of public opinion began to react unmistakably against draconian sentences of this kind. It soon became apparent that it was, as a rule, by no means a particularly dangerous type of person who committed this offence. And stress was justly laid upon the great temptation for demolition workers, firemen, or juveniles to pick up damaged articles of little value, which, apparently abandoned, might have been lying around for weeks. As one evening newspaper put it, quote, if the bombs introduce a new crime into England, we do not want them to introduce a new sort of justice, end quote. As a consequence, we now may sometimes even find auxiliary firemen simply bound over and taken back to their employment, and we do actually find this quite a lot in Liverpool. In conclusion, our research into the reporting and sensitive of looting within Liverpool and Merseyside has tended to confirm this broad pattern. Despite the state of emergency and the imposition of innumerable defence regulations, together with almost totalitarian rule by a central government, no one was sentenced to the death penalty, no one received more than seven years penal servitude, and the vast majority of other wartime offences were dealt with at the summary level, with fines rather than jail sentences being the preferred method of punishment. Admittedly, one fine and a company directed within Liverpool for defrauding the Ministry of Transport was set at £10,000 in 1942, I think that's right. A huge amount. Um, but that, that, that's the, the error that proves the rule. Uh, sorry, the exception that proves the rule. Uh, there was a clear dichotomy between official attempts to boost and maintain morale by promoting a strong public response to wartime misbehaviour and the actuality of sentencing practice amongst magistrates and judges towards those relatively few individuals who were seen as offending against both morale and morality. Thanks very much. So. This event was recorded live on the 12th of May, 2011, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.